Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This morning, we come to the second week in our three-part series entitled The Three-I Life, the Intercede, Invest, Invite Way of Living. In our partnership course, we discuss the contribution rhythm, what it means to contribute our lives to the telling of the great story of our God, and we use a simple tool to aid us in that gospel proclamation. It's an encouragement to intercede for, invest in, invite others to know Jesus Christ. Now, to intercede means simply to pray for, right? We're praying for those that we interact with in the community, bringing the the person's name before the Lord in prayer, to invest. It means to spend time with, to encourage, to help in a time of need, or simply to enjoy life together. And then to invite, and we'll look at that next week, to invite means to perhaps invite to a celebration service, but listen, It means so much more than that. I think something even deeper than that. It means to invite into your life to get to know and to get to love this person so that you love enough that you most importantly would invite the person to know Jesus Christ. That in a deep love that we know that Christ has and that we, by grace, have now for the one that we now know we would bring the proclamation of the gospel. So we encourage every gospel partner here at Cross Point Coast to always have three people, at least, (laughs) that we're praying for, that we're interceding for, that we're investing in, that we're inviting to know Jesus. And as I continue this series this morning, I would ask you, who does the Lord bring to mind? My guess is someone is on your mind right now So write it down and remember and pray and invest and invite. So recently, two friends of mine in Orlando who are pastors and ministry leaders wrote a book called The Great Dechurching. And in that book, it's the result of the largest uh, systematic study of dechurching to date. And just one statistic to represent what it means to be dechurching is this. They say about 40 million adults 
in the United States, that's 16% of America today, used to go to church and no longer do. Now, that's the only thing that we know from that, all right? There are, things, there are lots of things that we might think that we know from that statistic, but we don't actually know. We'd have to do other work, and they actually did, and the book is helpful in bringing some of those other things out. But at least we know this, 40 million adults that used to go to church don't anymore. A statistic like that is so much more than a number, and it's a huge number. I think of the multitude of names and faces that I have personally known for whom de-churching is a part of their own story. Perhaps it has been a part of your story this morning. Perhaps your even being here this morning is a part of the next part of the story for you. I truly hope and I pray, and I will preach toward that and walk with you. No, this church will walk with you in that new, beautiful part of your story. When I, I look at the church, one of the reasons why I continue to labor and call Cross Point Coast to maturity is that I believe that it's not only individuals or households that are de-churching. I would make an argument that when, when I look at the church, I see a church today that is de-churching. Here's what I mean by that. Perhaps it's not just individuals who have left the church. Perhaps many in, who are the church have left the church. Gospel proclamation, many of the things that are, uh, uh, that are supposed to be central to what it means to be a church, many churches have left behind, and so gospel proclamation is relegated to an altar call at the end of a sermon in what is otherwise mostly a sermon built around you and your own self-improvement. That we leave behind the centrality of the gospel to de-church the church, the fellowship of the saints by which we are both encouraged in holiness and, and we're counseled through repentance becomes programmatic entertainments another outlet for endless appetite of consumerism. And in that way, the church itself, the churches, perhaps for many who have left the church, it's actually the church itself that left the church long before the individual left the church. So it would seem, what really is the point in remaining in fellowship? One of the things that, that has struck me along the way is, there's just no reason that I, I, I can imagine, I can dream up to be a part of a church apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just can't think of it. The world does everything better except for this. We can know our God and we can be reconciled to him forever. You want entertainment? Man, movies, we got Disney, you know what I mean? Just right down the road if you want entertainment. If you want music, there's concerts and concert halls all over the place. We have one thing. What are we doing? Abandoning this one thing, thinking that by doing these other things, we could become like a church that people would want to be a part of. And I'm thinking, why? <laughs> why? And so the call, I think, for us is let's grow in maturity. Let us seek the Lord that he would fill us with his own spirit and his own word that we ourselves would remain the church. But this morning, it's not actually the point of the passage. It's not the point of the message this morning. It's 
Just something for us to consider that these who have de-churched, in addition to others that, that we would invest in, that we would share the gospel with, perhaps the, the, there's, a, there's a, a reason why people are leaving. There's a growing number in our community who are de-churched. I would encourage you to prayerfully consider who God has brought into your life who has a story that involves leaving the church. Now, here's one of the interesting things that comes from Jim and Michael's book. The, the, the number one cause in their study for de-churching is life disruption. Now, there's sort of a narrative that people are leaving because they're angry about something. And I'm sure that is often the case. But the thing that winds up really being the reason why people leave the church is just simply something changed in their lives. And the number one reason for that disruption is actually moving. Friends, we live in Florida. I don't know if you've noticed in your neighborhood, but there are a ton of yard signs with, you know, house for sale in the front. I've seen more U-Hauls in my neighborhood than I have in any other community that I've ever lived in. So that means statistically, there is a great deal of de-churching taking place in our neighborhoods. There is a disruption that is a cause to leave the church. It's, it's people who perhaps had some church connection before they moved, but, but now fail to ever connect locally after the move. It's just not a priority, or as many of you know, it's not easy to find a church. It's not easy. I'll, I'll grant you that. Well, here's a huge encouragement from Jim and Michael's book. They found in their research by survey data that 51% of evangelicals surveyed say that they are willing to return to the church. And the number one means that they believe would be a cause for return would simply be this, that they would be asked. <laughs> it's real simple. They left for a simple reason, and they don't return for a simple reason. I say that about maturity, is there's no reason to ask anyone to be a part of our fellowship together if our fellowship is not about Christ. There's no reason for us to have a fellowship together if our fellowship is not about Christ. But as we mature in a pursuit of Christ and centered on his gospel, we have something, friends. No, not something. We have the thing into which to invite those who would come if we would only ask. This is what it means to point our community to Jesus Christ. This is the heartbeat that compels this sermon series that we would intercede for, that we would invest in, and that we would invite to know Jesus. This morning, our scripture is Mark chapter 2, but we're going to look at Philippians 1. I'll read it for us in just a moment, but first let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your true gospel, the power of your gospel that is for salvation to everyone who believes. Lord, I pray that you would work in our midst, that you would convict us of sin, that you would draw us to your great love and grace, and that you would compel us to make this good news known in our communities. Lord, I pray that this would become, by your grace, as we depend upon you, a fruitful labor. Thank you, Lord. We pray 
that your word would work in our midst this morning. Amen. Again, our, our, we'll look at Mark 2 in just a moment, but for now, I would invite you to flip over to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, where Paul gives us a glimpse at how he understands how we are to spend our lives for Christ, how to spend a life. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21 through 24. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, but which is with Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, let's just take a second to understand the context. Paul is in prison. And in prison, he's writing a letter to the Philippians, a people among whom he has invested his life. He's planted the church. He's shared the gospel, that center thing that makes them a people together to begin with and will keep them a people together. And he's in prison now, and he's writing this letter. And he's in this situation where he's contemplating two possible outcomes of his present circumstance. You see, he's in prison, and he's thinking, perhaps I will be allowed to, you know, just continue in prison or perhaps even be released. That is on the one hand, to live is Christ. And then he has the other very real option, an option that will ultimately come to him someday, that he would be executed. And this is what he means by to die is gain. Not like eventually an old age sort of thing. No, he's in prison and he's facing the very real possibility of execution. So to live is Christ and to die is gain And then he thinks, so to go on living, whether it be in this prison or released and finally free to go and visit you in Philippian, in Philippi, to live equals, he says, fruitful labor. Do you see where it says that here? To to live equals fruitful labor. But my desire is to depart to be with Christ. As he evaluates the two, he's like, execution leads to what I long for is to be face-to-face, no longer through a glass dimly, but face-to-face in fellowship with my Savior, Jesus Christ. And as fruitful as the labor is, it's still labor, and I long for the labor to be over so I can take my rest in his kingdom forever. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. After contemplating the very real possibilities of the two outcomes, he concludes this, to live is necessary, that is, he says, to remain on your account. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. For your progress and joy in the faith. Here's what to live means, to give up all of the remaining living for you. To invest. I want Jesus. You see, Paul's desire is to be with Christ. And when he asks his heart, heart, what do you want? His heart says, I want to depart and be with Jesus. And then, as he looks at Jesus, his aim and his joy, the world has lost its hold on Paul. 
He's like, let it go. In the, face of, in the face of execution, he can truly say, you can do me no harm. The world's already crucified to me. Crucify me. You can't do it. Then in this position, with his eyes fixed on Jesus, the world crucified to him as he sees Christ and his desire is for the things of Jesus, Paul sees and understands that Jesus' desire is for the Philippians. You see? Paul, desiring Christ and the things of Christ, he sees the things of Christ is proclamation of the gospel to the Philippians. And so he says, yeah, that's what I want. That's what I want. So, so Paul, desiring the things of Jesus will remain out of a desire for Jesus. He will remain so that he can bring to Philippi Jesus. So what is Paul's singular purpose for the continued life? His singular purpose to remain is investment in the lives of the Philippians and others for the glory of Jesus. So in the end, in light of Jesus' own commission, the, the mission of making disciples, the primary purpose of life is this, to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel of our desire. We have one that is desired, and we proclaim him as desirable. And making him known as our delight becomes our life's mission. Jesus, in his gospel, has already secured for the believer our greatest hope and joy. So we're not, we're not laboring to achieve some great thing. We already have the great thing. We're trying to proclaim the great thing to those who do not yet have him. Christ has secured fellowship with God forever. And so our continued life in a fallen world doesn't have the same charm for us as it used to. We have a greater hope. And so Paul's conclusion is that the reason to endure, the purpose of continued life, is the mission of his hope and joy, Jesus. Let's be clear. What I just said is the purpose of life is mission. But what I did not say is that the purpose of your existence is mission. You are not being used by God. God is not just sort of using you because he wants something else. No, the purpose of your life is to love and enjoy God. This is the purpose for your existence. And that will remain long after the mission has passed away. And in this little moment, of your existence, your existence that belongs to the love, the desire, the delight, and the joy that is found in your God. Let me just put it real short for you. You exist for worship and to be satisfied in that worship. And in this little moment, the way you will be satisfied in Christ is to be enamored with his purpose in this world. And in this little moment, his purpose is to make his worship known, to make his glory known, to make the means by which we can be reconciled with him forever and enjoy him forever known in this world. This is what it means to invest. It means to pour out your life for the purpose of the glory of Christ by laboring for the progress and joy in the faith of others. So you see, mission investment in the life of others, the proclamation of the gospel in the places to which God sent us is actually an act 
of glorifying God for the believer. As verse 26 again says, if you look at verse 26, this is so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? I could press this and I won't because we need to keep moving. But I'd love to just press in on you. We, we have made mission about people. But people are actually not the center of our mission. If all that we can see is lost people, people are too small of a great glory to delight in. But God in his condescending love has seen us. And he has redeemed us so that we can take joy in him. The purpose of mission is the great glory of our God at risk. And when we look around and we say, I see all these people in their despair and in lostness and and in sin, and my glorious Savior is being robbed of worship in their heart. So I will go and I proclaim his greatness to this human heart. And they will be joyously, like myself, rescued from sin and out of brokenness and lostness and rebellion and into the great worship of our God. You see, the end of of mission isn't people. The end of worship is glory. Look at it again. So that in me you may have ample cause to say, hey, thanks, Paul, for rescuing us. Sure is great to be a rescued person just like you. No, ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. The end of mission is the glory of our God. By God's grace, as we intercede for our neighbors, this will mean fruitful labor of worship. Now, I want to take us over to Mark chapter two. Keep a marker there in Philippians. Go with me back to Mark chapter two. Mark chapter two, we see a wonderful example of investment. It's such a curious little episode of an example of investment. I'm just gonna retell the story. We have Jesus, he's back in Capernaum. He's at his home there and, and many people have gathered because Jesus is, is growing in a, a, a sort of a popularity of his ministry in that day. And there's, there's no room in the house. There's not even room at the door. And notice what he's doing. What is Jesus's labor? What, what, does, what is the labor that he is engaged in that will be so fruitful? He's preaching the word to them. That should be instructive to us. It's the same thing that we see the apostle Paul doing. It's, this, it's what we see Jesus do throughout, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And here he is preaching the word to them. And they came. And this time in verse three, they bring a paralytic carried by four men to Jesus. Now they couldn't get near him. Remember, there was no room in the house. There's no room at the door. How in the world are they going to get the paralytic to Jesus inside the house? And when they got near, verse four, him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. We joked in the office today that we were going to name this sermon, Raise the Roof, right? right. They, they literally made a hole in the roof above Jesus, and they let the bed down in which the paralytic lay. That's different. <laughs> Not very many people went to the house that day thinking, I bet somebody breaks in through the roof, right? 
But here are these four men. And it says in verse five, bringing their friend the paralytic, Jesus saw their faith. And he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Let me tell you, more people showed up at that house expecting a roof to have somebody break through it than to have Jesus tell a man, son, your sins are forgiven. That's gigantic. More people showed up that day thinking that a paralytic would be healed than that someone would say, son, your sins are forgiven. I preached this passage at Easter three years ago, and the purpose of the passage is is faith encountering miraculous grace. The purpose of the miracle, when, when Jesus heals this man, the purpose of the miracle is to give evidence of Jesus's authority to forgive sin. Think about it for a moment. Jesus can walk around all day saying, your sins are forgiven, and your sins are forgiven, and everybody's like, ooh, I feel like my sins are forgiven. And the, and the skeptics among them are like, really? I mean, can you do that? And they did. The skeptics among them said, blasphemer! You can walk around saying that all day long, but you can't do that. And Jesus says, okay, I get it. When I say, son, your sins are forgiven, you see no change except for someone's heart, strangely warmed, right? And then he says, okay, which is easier? To say, son, your sins are forgiven, or get up, take your mat, and walk. Friends, we get it mixed up, which is harder. It's the first one. Jesus is a miracle worker, but the great miracle of our God is not that some paralytic can walk. The great miracle of our God is that when he says, son, your sins are forgiven, it actually works. And so he says, and I can show you that I can do this sort of thing. Get up, take your mat and walk. And even says, this is why I said the first thing to you. And then I did the second thing is so that you would know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is the purpose of the miracle. It's the purpose of the passage. One of the reasons I tell you that is so you can see this is the gospel. That Jesus Christ has come to earth to save sinners. And he did that by means of not just simply declaring you're forgiven, but purchasing the means by which that man would be forgiven by giving himself in the place of that paralytic on a cross so that his sins would be atoned for and that when he rises from the dead, that paralytic has the hope of eternal life. This is the gospel. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they say. Nailed it. (laughs) You nailed it. One of the reasons why I mention all of that is because why I turned to this passage this morning is not for the main point. The main point of this passage is not for men who invest in one man's life, but it is while I have had you turn there. Mark chapter two is a beautiful example. A small group of friends, they love their friend. I mean, you, you don't break into somebody's house through the roof and do something so awkward and so weird unless you love this friend. They see his need and they have a glimmer of hope. In Jesus. There's no way they thought that all of this would happen when they, they broke through the roof. And we see that over and over again when we were in Mark. Some of you remember. We see people coming to Jesus with like a glimmer of hope, and Jesus just blows up with grace just how great he is and just how much we ought to have expected in faith 
even with their little faith. They have a glimmer of hope and they bring a friend to Jesus. This is investment in a paralytic's life by four friends and it leads to an encounter with Jesus in which God's grace brings eternal transformation. Do you love anyone? Some of you do deeply. And you've been praying for a long time. I want you to have a glimmer of hope. I don't know what you're expecting out of your prayer. But these men were not expecting what they got. And may the Lord see your faith and turn to your friend and redeem. And blow all your all's mind. So when you sing amazing grace, it's all the more amazing because it's truly grace. There's a few things I notice in this passage. The first is the friends don't heal the paralytic. It's not a story of investment that leads to their labor fixing things. A call to invest in your community is not a call for you to fix your community. They bring him to Jesus, and it's Jesus who heals. A phrase that I often use with friends is I say, our desire as a church is to apply a gospel balm. And I've seen the balm work. Our application, uh, not so good. (laughs) But the balm, the gospel, the good news works. One of the barriers that can hold us back from sharing our gospel with our friends is a fear that you are inadequate. Let me just allay that fear for you. You are inadequate. Yeah, it's true. It's kind of the whole point. You're not preaching the gospel if you aren't able to confess with Paul that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. Paul's inadequate. That's why, if we truly love our friends, we'll point them to whom? To Jesus. Second, Jesus sees the faith of the friends. I don't even really understand what this means. I don't understand the ins and outs of, of, of why this little phrase is included in here, except there is something beautiful and mysterious about faith. It, it's a reality that stands underneath of our intercession, that we come before the Lord in faith on behalf of those we love. And it's this faith to bring another to Jesus, an expectation that the Lord will act on behalf of our faith-filled labor for our friend. And the Lord is pleased to act. So continue on, friends. Continue on in your faith before the Lord. And may the Lord make it a fruitful labor. Third, investment in the paralytic's body becomes investment in his soul. And you see that, right? Why did they come to Jesus? Because they have a paralytic friend, right? The four men brought the paralytic to Jesus because of his broken body. It's right and good that they would do so. It's good to bring the needs of your friends to the Lord. We can't be so spiritually minded that we don't see the reality of the physical needs of the people that are around us. See it and bring those needs to the Lord. Honestly, it's one of the the most... um, open doors of investment for the people that you know is to simply say, I, I, you know I'm like that weirdo praying person, right? And that like when I say I'll pray for you, you know like I'm the one who like, non, thoughts and prayers, no, like I actually, I pray for you. 
So how can I pray for you? And then pray for him. Pray for her. Like even right there maybe. Let your faith be known, not just before the person, but before the Lord on their behalf of these needs. And when we intercede, we bring the whole of the person to Jesus. And we can be assured that Jesus receives the whole of the person, the whole of their story. And he sees their broken bodies, and he sees their broken souls, and he sees their need for grace, just as he did in this passage in Mark chapter 2. What does Jesus bring to the suffering? He gives something far greater than a relief to what ails us or what we think ails us. He addresses the deepest need and fixes what is broken. That which has been broken from the sin of Adam and Eve and our rebellion, that which is our greatest need, our broken fellowship with our God because of our sin and the reality of God's just, his righteous, his good justice on sinners like us. That's what Jesus addresses. And he addresses it, as we've said already, by means of the giving of his own life on the cross, in the place of sinners that ought to be there, like a paralytic and like me and like Paul, that ought to be on that cross. And he dies in their place that we might be reconciled to God, have our sins actually, functionally, really forgiven, so that before our God we can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What we have in Mark chapter two is an example of friends using their lives to invest in another. What we have here is so much more than being a nice person, so much more than a random act of kindness. We have a faith-filled labor to bring a person to Jesus in the face of real-life obstacles. And as Paul said, it's labor, but it's fruitful labor. We're gonna spend the remainder of our time just looking at five things. I want to ask a question, a relatively simple question. I'm going to answer it quickly in five ways. The question is this, what is investment? What do we mean when we say that we intercede, invest, and invite? What's the definition of investment? It's to expend for the purpose of profit. To expend, so to lose, for the sake of gain. To live is Christ. And to die is is gain. It's a life poured out for Christ that reaps the reward of the gain in a new worship, in a new disciple, in the redeemed. It's the intentional leveraging of one's possessions, one's time, talent, and treasure for the purpose of growth. So investment isn't loss. It's actually gain. I want to spend the remainder of our time considering the question, what is investment from a couple different angles? Let me begin with this. Investment is love. And friends, we get this one wrong so very often with disciple-making strategies. Disciple-making is not a strategy. Disciple-making is love. Where did we get that idea? But him who loved us most and loved us first. The gospel, the history of redemption, is not a great strategic outworking of some sort of detached divine plan of kingdom building. For God so loved the world 
When we speak of investing your life for making disciples, we aren't talking about treating people like objects. It may not be about people, ultimately, but it involves genuine, real, condescending love of actual people. It means actually loving them. Many years ago, in sharing in the partnership course about contributing our time, talent, and treasure, uh, as someone suggested, there not there like a fourth part? I mean, you have time, you have t- talent, and you have treasure. Don't we also contribute our love? And I thought about it. I remember, like, like hmm, it doesn't start with a T. I'm sorry. It just isn't going to work. How can I get out of this? Because they have a good point. Go, nope, not love. <laughs> nope. <laughs> How am I going to get out of this mess? What a great point. But then I, I considered again, is love really a fourth thing? Or is love actually the undergirding reality that, can t- that sort of compels our contribution of our time, talent, and treasure? Or as 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I gave away all that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, and have not love, I gain nothing. That's investment unto nothing. But investment unto gain requires love. As we intercede for our community, we pray that the Lord would give his love for those he came to save. Just on a, by way of personal testimony, there is a few times in my life that I've prayed, and, and I've prayed very, very specifically about something, and I can say, like, that thing, like to a T, took place, crying out to the Lord. One of the times very early was, God, would you grant to me your heart for the lost. Grant me love that I do not have for those who are lost. And heartbreakingly, he answered that prayer. I think that that's one of those ask, seek, knocks that the Lord's like, the door's already open. I will give you my heart for the lost. I will grant to you love. Would you begin there? Love, what is investment? It's nothing if it's not love. Second, investment is the intentional use of the rhythms of your life. I say this because some of you are like, investment. Man, he's just hitting us with all the stuff that we're supposed to do. And, And it's true. Some hear the message of investing our lives for others, and you hear a crushing burden being added to a full life. I would argue, surely it does perhaps mean a change in the way that you live. But remember Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? If all of life is going out and coming home and rising and lying down and walking along the way, and in all of these places we're supposed to be saturated with the Word of God, Deuteronomy 6 links up with Matthew chapter 28. And he says, go, therefore, and make disciples. And that word go can be translated with a sense of as you are going. When you're rising up and you're lying down, make disciples. You see, I do get up in the morning and I do go down at night. I do leave my house and I do come home. The question is, in those places, am I investing in the lives of others or am I storing up treasure for myself? Use the rhythms of your life. Do you eat meals? Anyone? Anyone? 
Do you take lunch breaks? Do you, do you ever take walks? Some of you do. Some of you love games. Some of you are busy with athletics. Some of you go grocery shopping. In all of these things, text someone right before it. Say, hey, thinking about you. In fact, wanna, do you walk? <laughs> do you ever eat a meal? <laughs> do you want to grab one sometime? Get to know people in the regular activities that you are already engaged in. An invested life is living life with a Christ-centered, discipleship-oriented intentionality of Paul who says, to live is Christ. He's not saying, I will no longer eat meals or go for walks or go out or come in. No, he's saying, as I do that, all of that is Christ. In all of those places, to live, to go to the grocery store, to run an errand, to go to work, to take a walk, to eat lunch is Christ. It is an opportunity afforded by God by which we may glorify the Lord by making disciples. All of them. Consider. It's not Investment is not frenetic activity in addition to the normal things. Paul was in prison when he said to, to live as Christ. He's in prison. There's not a lot of frenetic activity in prison, but there is intentionality. He thought, what's something I can do in prison? Like, as I am going to prison. Jailer, can I have some paper? a pen, and perhaps a scribe. I'll write a letter in prison. And many faithful have spent their time in prison doing exactly that thing. And you're free. Third, investment is prayerful. Let's remember, it's intercede, invest, invite. It's not like, hey, start doing stuff. No, it's intercede. Perhaps begin by, by praying for opportunity. Praying for, like, maybe there's three people you've been investing in, and you're like, I feel like I'm using them to fulfill some sort of like biblical mandate. God, I won't just begin by asking you to fill me with love. I'm going to repent that I have not loved. And he's, he's glad to forgive you and grant you a love. Intercede. And in our intercession, that investment we pray would be fruitful. Fourth, investment glorifies God and, not, and is not self-conscious. It's God-oriented, filled up with an imagination of, and a desire for God, not self. To invest your life for Christ means to die to self-consciousness. Don't be afraid to make your love known. I mean, that's what investment is. It's making your love known. The way of a life that gives itself away for Christ is not the normal way of the world, but neither is breaking through a roof in a house to drop a paralytic through. All right? It's, but if... It's love. Don't be afraid to make your love known. On the flip side, practically, one of the best ways to move toward investing in the lives of others is to put away self-centeredness. This is not easy. The most natural things to you and I are to be self-centered. There's one person I'm stuck with all my days, and it's me, and it's hard. <laughs> And yet, I find it quite easy to care about me and to think about me and talk about me. Perhaps the simplest form of investment would be not to talk about yourself all the time, to begin to listen 
to begin to learn the stories of those around you, that you can have you know, content for prayer and cause for love and compassion. In this way, we'll discover the real needs of those who need to be brought to the Lord for healing. Fifth, investment is not the way of the world. You see, the world loves happy talk. The world loves to celebrate random acts of kindness and charitable giving, but the natural rhythms of the world, and especially the consumeristic lifestyle promoted by contemporary culture, are deeply opposed of a life that's leveraged for the glory of God, that's invested in the lives of others to share the love of Jesus and the gospel. Let me share with you a phrase that is just utterly incompatible with to live is Christ and to die is gain. I need a little me time. How about a little self-care? Friends, what, what, what do we and others need? The balm of the gospel is the greatest self-care. I, I really can't think of a time where sharing in gospel relationship has not been soul care for me. But that's not natural in the world. It's not the automatic way. Some of you just heard crushing burden. <laughs> I know you did. Can you remember some of the other points while I'm calling us against, you know, just being all about soul care? Can you remember it's not a crushing burden? Can you remember that it's not a frenetic life where there is no care for the soul? Where there's no a private prayer before our God with the Father? But friends, it is countercultural. Let me give you just one example. Consider Sunday. Often hear that Sunday is a day for family. Culturally, Sunday might remain a little bit for that, family and football, you know. And I think it does sound kind of nice. I mean, it sounds better than being all about football. At least Sunday's about family. But is it truly a godly norm, or is that actually a cultural norm? Isn't Sunday the Lord's Day? It's a day for worship and devotion to reorient our lives in faith toward God, not family, God. And when it comes to Sunday afternoon lunch and our, our rest in the evening, does that time belong to our family or does it belong to the Lord? If Sundays belong to our family, we're more likely to live lives that have closed doors. But if Sunday belongs to the Lord, we are more likely to open our very families Together, still family time, we are more likely to open our families and our lives with open doors. I would give this to you to consider, to, just a simple encouragement to be intentional, to examine the rhythms of your life. I don't know what your Sunday afternoon's like. I didn't just tell you how to use it. Except for to live is Christ. To live is Christ. It's hard to argue with. As we'll see next week, no loving investment in the life of another is complete unless the purpose and the end of our love is to bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is love. There are a few things that are more countercultural than that. The world finds a lot with random acts of kindness and general niceness, but when we truly love, we will not withhold the good news of grace. Application, I would share with you just two things. One is this you know what investment is. I don't have to tell you what to do. I think you know. I think the biggest problem is that some of us keep asking what we should do when we know what we should do. 
And so, with no crushing burden, let me just say, if you know what to do it, like, don't study what to do. Do it. That's the application. There you go. Do it. It's not a crushing burden. Love Christ. And in that love for Christ, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're still wondering, but I still, I really, no, I really do mean it. I don't know what to do. Let me offer you this very, very practical next step. Learn to invest by finding someone that is doing well. And then just do pretty much what they're doing for a while. The person that's doing it well is terrified to tell you what you ought to do. Because if they're doing it well, they don't want to be legalistic and they don't want to think that they're doing it right. You know, because they're, they're humble if they're doing it right. Find someone that you know is investing well, and for one month, maybe two, like adopt one or two of that person's practices. And then after one or two months, you may find, hmm, I could see how something like that might work in my own life and be a faithful way to live. The, the solution is not to become that person. The solution is to become like Christ. And we can follow another in how to do that. Do you hear the practical? For those of you who are wondering, what does it look like to invest? Find someone. Follow them as they follow Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love for us. You have loved us well. You've loved us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You've loved us in giving us that lover of our souls, the, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and that you would empower our proclamation that as the word goes out, your spirit would work right there in that love and investment and proclamation. And Lord, you would convict of sin and you would save. And we'll rejoice. We will be amazed and glorify God just like the people in that home in Mark chapter two. Fill up our worship next week with greater rejoicing because we've seen fruitful labor in the week that is to come. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for your grace. And this morning, would you call even this morning one to whom the gospel proclamation has come, would you call that one to faith this morning? Thank you, God. We, we trust you for these things. You are our hope and our joy. You are the lover of our souls by whom we learn love. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.